prepare to be forever haunted by the thought that you might at any moment burst into flames. Marvel at the laws of nature going up in smoke. Kindle a burning desire to solve an age-old mystery. All this and more to entice, ignite, and incinerate. It's smoldering. It's red hot. It's this week's flaming cocktail of Odd Tonic. Welcome to the parlor. I'm Jennifer. And I'm Maxwell. Welcome, dear guest. And join us on the settee. We have much to share and want to jump straight into tonight's hot topic. For centuries, people have debated whether human beings can, like a pile of kerosene-soaked rags on a hot sun porch, simply spontaneously combust into flames (laughs) without the aid of an external ignition source. The first suspected accounts of spontaneous human combustion, or SHC, date back to 1641. But interest in the phenomenon really caught fire. As it were. In the 19th century, after author Charles Dickens controversially combusted a character in his novel Bleak House. When Dickens took heat. As it were. For trying to legitimize something that didn't exist, he calmly pointed to research showing 30 historical cases of SHC. Then, one can imagine, he paused and said, But you were totally okay with Christmas ghosts, huh? <laughs> So, dear guest, does spontaneous human combustion really exist? Or is it just another way that the godless communist hippie cabal is out to corrupt our children with their pro-incineration agenda? Let us share some stories of poor souls whose lives were touched by fire. And you be the judge. On July 1st, 1951, 67-year-old Mary Reeser was visited by her physician's son, Richard, and her landlady, Pansy Carpenter. Mary, who lived alone in her St. Petersburg, Florida studio apartment, was feeling a bit depressed as she thought that she might not be able to travel north for the summer. When asked, she admitted that she hadn't eaten dinner and had taken two sedatives. She suffered from insomnia and mentioned that she might take two more before retiring. A routine that her concerned son had noted was becoming a nightly habit. At 9 p.m., Mary was sitting in her favorite chair in the corner of the room, wearing her nightgown, robe, and slippers. She bid her son and Mrs. Carpenter good night, and they left her in good health. Around five the next morning, Mrs. Carpenter was awakened by the smell of smoke. The building's water pump had been overheating lately, so Pansy went out to the garage, turned it off, and went back to bed. At 8 a.m., Mrs. Carpenter was awakened again, this time by a Western Union messenger knocking on her door with a telegram for Mary Reeser. Pansy walked the message to Mary's apartment and knocked on her door. When there was no answer, Pansy grew concerned and tried the door handle, then went from concerned to frightened, when she found the doorknob to be quite hot. Dreading a fire, she ran back to her apartment and phoned the police. When they arrived, Pansy took them to Mary's apartment and the policemen broke through the door where they were immediately hit by an intense wave of heat. They rushed inside 
expecting to find the home in flames. What they found instead was difficult to comprehend. Though there was no fire, there was evidence that there had been one, and a very intense one at that. The corner chair that Mary had last been seen sitting on was reduced to ashes. Only two legs of the end table beside the chair had survived the fire, and the lamp that had been on top of it was badly damaged. Proof of the fire's enormous heat was everywhere. A mirror 10 feet from the chair had cracked and two pink candles on the fireplace had melted to lumps, their wicks intact. But perplexingly, a pile of newspapers stacked next to Mary's chair had remained completely burn-free. A layer of soot ringed the upper part of the walls, resembling the results of a long-burning kerosene lamp. All of the electrical outlets above this line had melted, including one that powered a table clock, which had stopped at 4.20 a.m. And again, strangely, the switches and outlets below the soot line were intact and functional. In fact, outside of a scorch mark on the rug beneath the chair, the rest of the room was seemingly unaffected by the fire and its smoke. The sheets on Mary's sofa bed were turned down neatly. I'll never forget it. The sheets on the studio bed were still white, said Bill Bennett, one of the firefighters who arrived on the scene. But this wasn't the only strange discovery made by the fire service. As they investigated the pile of ashes in the corner, a terrible revelation was made. Among the cinders and metal springs, they found Mary's left foot burnt off to about four inches above the ankle. The foot itself, uncharred, still wore the black satin slipper. They discovered a skull fragment and some vertebra, but that was all. All that remained of 170-pound Mary Reeser was 10 pounds of ash. This fire is a curious thing, stated Detective Chief Cass Burgess. Understanding that it requires three or four hours of temperatures between 2,500 and 3,500 degrees Fahrenheit for a body to be cremated, the case baffled the St. Petersburg police and fire authorities. How could a fire have destroyed a human body so completely in such a small, confined area while not damaging the structure of the building or the furniture in the room, not even with its smoke? The police chief turned to the FBI. After several months, they stated that the fire had not been caused by lightning or chemicals. They concluded that Mary Reeser, who had been a smoker, had fallen asleep in her chair with a lit cigarette. The cigarette had caught her clothes on fire, and she burnt to death. Dr. Wilton M. Krogman, a professor of physical anthropology at the University of Pennsylvania and an experienced fire researcher, wrote that of all of the fire deaths he had investigated, the Mary Reeser case still haunted him. I cannot conceive of such complete cremation without more burning of the apartment, he had said and went on to add, This is contrary to normal experience, and I regard it as the most amazing thing I have ever seen. As I review it, 
The short hairs on my neck bristle with vague fear. If I were living in the Middle Ages, I'd mutter something about black magic. Do you have questions, dear guest? We did too. So we did some research with this question in mind. Just how easy is it to set yourself on fire with a cigarette? If you are an avid watcher of movies, the answer may surprise you. Fire Findings is an organization that's been doing fire investigations and testing for 23 years. In a test of 500 cigarette trials, they dropped lit cigarettes on articles of clothing from a variety of materials. The results? Every cigarette self-extinguished, with fire damage limited to the immediate area around the cigarette. Not one test resulted in flaming combustion until the environmental conditions were changed. When a ceiling fan eight and a half feet above was added to the test at a low speed and created a wind at a slight 2.1 miles an hour, a flame could be dependably produced. So, is it possible that Mary Reeser died in her sleep, dropped a cigarette, and had just enough of a breeze in her room to fully set herself ablaze at 3,000 degrees for four hours in a fire that somehow didn't spread throughout the apartment until she disintegrated. Or does the FBI just not want to be the first to go on record to confirm spontaneous human combustion? (laughs) Hey now, that's starting to sound like godless communist hippie talk. Then let's explore another case to find some answers. Surely it couldn't be stranger than that of Mary Reeser's. Could it? 58-year-old George Mott was a retired firefighter who had battled blazes for Crown Point, New York for 30 years. Is there a big irony coming up in this story? Yes. <laughs> yes, there is. George had been hospitalized with lung problems and had recently returned home to his rustic cabin in the woods with a new routine to help with his breathing issues new medications during the day, and the use of an oxygen machine at night. On the evening of March 25, 1986, his son Kendall had to work late and was not able to check on his father as he tried to do every night. The next evening, he headed over to his father's directly from work. Outside of his father's home, he reached for the door handle. It was warm. Alarmed, he immediately went inside. Says Kendall, There was a burnt smell, like a metallic smell. The whole house was black, and it was like a dungeon. He called out for his father several times, finally finding him inside his bedroom. When the fire department arrived, they discovered a scene unlike any other they had ever confronted. Bob Purdy of the fire department said, I've seen a lot of fires and seen quite a few fatalities where people were burned, but I've never seen anything like this. The man was lying in bed and he had just disintegrated. You could see the V-shape in the bed where he was rendered down through the floor and the house didn't catch on fire. All that was left of George was his lower right leg down from the kneecap, a piece of his skull, and three pounds of ash. And we know what you're thinking, but George's highly flammable oxygen tank was still intact and in the living room. When the fire department arrived, it was still running, with oxygen pumping from the mask. So what happened in the bedroom? George didn't smoke, and yet he had incinerated, which melted the room's TV, but left a nearby box of wooden matches completely intact. 
Also left unscorched was much of the bedding where George had been laying, where it hadn't been directly touching him. Firefighters discovered an odd, greasy coating covering every horizontal surface. They noted that the water had evaporated from the toilet and that the bathtub had been completely ringed with soot, looking as if someone had taken a bath in black paint. Stranger still, when investigators opened the refrigerator, they had found the butter had melted. Even though the fridge was still cool and operating normally, the butter had heated enough to melt even the plastic butter dish that had housed it. Also inside was an unopened package of hot dogs that appeared to have been boiled within its wrapper. Wow. In their final report, the investigators concluded that what happened was this. While George Mott had been sitting in his living room with his oxygen mask on, Electricity arced from a nearby outlet. Thanks to the oxygen, the electricity set George ablaze. Engulfed in flames, George removed the mask, walked to his bedroom, and laid down on his bed, where he burnt to death in a resting position. (laughs) Chief Bob Purdy and his investigators don't believe that is what happened at all. And the final irony? A friend claimed that shortly before the incident, she and George had been watching an episode of The Twilight Zone. Afterwards, George turned and remarked, Nothing weird like that ever happened to me. I wish it would. Hmm. A textbook example of careful what you wish for. (laughs) It's fascinating, heartbreaking, and completely terrifying. You know, as if the investigator's report isn't amusing enough, skeptics like to point out that George had been suffering from depression, had been a smoker several years earlier, and was an ex-drinker. As if that explains anything. (laughs) Like how he was reduced to ashes at 3,000 degrees, (laughs) or how the wood cabin didn't burn to the ground. And the hot dogs and the butter. I'm really glad you brought that up because it is a very weird detail. Yeah. If they were inside the fridge and not really exposed to the direct heat, is there some sort of crazy phenomenon that starts a reaction that zeroes in on a particular compound or makeup, like fatty materials in this case? Don't you be peddling that hippie cabal propaganda around me, <laughs> swamp witch. <laughs> okay, then how about this? Government-sponsored alien death ray. <laughs> Premiering this September at Area 51. <laughs> well, what do you think, dear guest? Could a government-sponsored alien death ray be behind uh, spontaneous combustion? Or could it be something else? A vital clue comes to us from this account in John Hamer's 1996 book, The Entrancing Flame. Shortly after 5 a.m. on September 13, 1967, a group of office cleaners were waiting at a bus stop on their way to work when their attention was drawn to the first floor window of a derelict house. They saw a strange blue flickering light but couldn't see its source. They assumed it was a burning gas leak and so called the authorities. Station officer Jack Stacy and his crew were on the scene within three minutes. He was the first to arrive and entered through a window. Jack later explained what they had found. When I got in through the window, I found the body of a man named Bailey lying at the bottom of the stairs leading up to the second floor. He was lying partially on his left side. There was a four-inch slit in his abdomen from which issued at force, a blue flame 
like a blowtorch. The flame was beginning to burn the wooden stairs. Bailey was alive when he started burning. He must have been in terrible pain. His teeth were sunk into the mahogany post of the staircase. I had to pry his jaws apart to release the body. The fire was definitely coming from within the abdomen of the body. Jack Stacy further stated that he had to put a fire hose into the abdominal cavity to extinguish the flames and that they did not extinguish easily. And the detail that Bailey was alive when he started burning is not in dispute. The pathologist gave the cause of death as asphyxia due to inhalation of fire fumes. Here we have one of the most bizarre causes of death imaginable. The man suffocated on the fumes of his own combustion. <laughs> I like how, again, the conclusion of SHC is danced around as the cause of death. He asphyxiated. Let's ignore the giant, unexplainable gut flame. <laughs> there are more than a few fire officers who are convinced that this was a case of SHC. However, Jack Stacy is not one of them. He said he would have, quote, no truck with such nonsense. And as a Yorkshireman, he doesn't believe in mysteries. <laughs> he says Bailey was a known alcoholic. His addiction was so strong that he was a meth drinker, one who would resort to drinking cheap, denatured alcohol not meant for human consumption, such as window cleaner or degreaser. Jack states that he had drunk too much of it and it had erupted through his abdomen and somehow exploded into flame. It was an unusual death, but not worthy of fuss. Somehow exploded into flame. <laughs> Even if methylated spirits were to blame, how could that level of pressure be maintained for at least seven minutes? Mm -hmm. The cleaners first observed the blue flames at 5.19 a.m. The fire continued to burn until extinguished, with some difficulty, by Stacy at 5.26 a.m. So the blue flames were roaring, roaring with no signs of stopping on their own from Bailey's abdomen for at least seven minutes. Apart from the physical impossibility of alcohol bursting through an abdomen and igniting with no source of ignition and maintaining an impossible pressure for an equally impossible length of time, we also have to face the fact that the amount of alcohol in a human stomach could never have done the damage to the flooring and the stairs that was in contact with Bailey's body. It amazes me how people can just casually sweep all the unexplained loose ends under the rug just to have a tidy explanation so they can sleep at night. Yep, I'm with you. I'm full cabal at this point. <laughs> well, let's take a quick break. And when we return, we'll explore more eyewitness accounts of SHC, as well as stories of individuals who managed to survive the phenomena. Don't go away. Odd Tonic will be right back after this brief cool down. Do you remember life before Odd Tonic? There you were slogging through the zombie masses alone without any backup or were you trapped in the dark buried alive in the family graveyard desperately groping for the bell to let others know you were alive well dear guest consider us the rope to the bell oh that's so sweet <laughs> <laughs> and now you're safe and sound in the parlor with us 
So brush off the burial dirt and that one stray mealworm. <laughs> Enjoy your stay as we weave strange tales to amaze and entertain you. Help others find their way to Odd Tonic's parlor as well. Write us a smashing review on iTunes to let other fellow oddlings know about your strange new discovery. Each review really contributes to Odd Tonic's vitality. And as always, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram and like us on Facebook all at Odd Tonic Society. And check out the Odd Tonic group on Facebook. We have oodles of odd going on there 24-7. Now let's return for more burning questions and smoldering mysteries. Welcome back. So far, we've explored cases of spontaneous human combustion where the victim was unable to give any insight on the phenomena from their point of view. Had there been any warning? Any common environmental element? Let's now investigate cases where the victims survived to tell the tale. We'll begin with another case documented by John Hamer in his book, The Entrancing Flame. In January 1991, a 71-year-old man named Wilford Gowthorpe lived in Pocklington, Yorkshire. He lived alone but stayed with young friends during the daytime, Sandra Stubbins and her husband George Stubbins, who had adopted him as sort of a relative. On the day of the incident, the couple were decorating their house. Wilfred was there, helping out with various tasks. Mrs. Stubbins said goodbye to Wilfred before going out for a half hour on an errand, and Wilfred had offered to help clean up in the meantime. When Sandra came home, she described what happened. I returned after a half hour and Wilf was in the corner of the kitchen. The bucket and brush, which he was going to use to clean, were in the sink and the cold water tap was running. I thought he had had a stroke. I called the doctor immediately. Dr. Dunham came and examined Wilf and said, What has he done to his hand? I said, I don't know. Oh, he said, it's the hospital straight away. Both fingers were amputated at the hospital. They said they were so charred that if they had not been amputated, they would have broken off on their own. His arm was burned right up to his elbow. How could he have done that? His shirt sleeve was buttoned at the wrist and his jacket sleeve came down to his wrist. Neither his shirt sleeve nor his jacket sleeve were burned. George added in his statement, I saw Wilf leaning in the corner against the countertop. He was like in a trance or shock. I've never seen shock, but I would describe him as being in a trance. You couldn't get anything out of him. He wouldn't speak except for a bit of a grunt. I asked him what was wrong, but you couldn't get anything out of him. Sandra said, He couldn't remember anything about what happened. He seemed to be in a trance. It was a cold day, but Wilf was soaked in sweat. His clothes were wet from perspiring, except his left coat sleeve and his shirt sleeve. They were dry. But Wilf couldn't remember anything about what happened to him. He kept saying for ages afterward, What happened to me? What did I do? Wilf felt no pain until he had been in the hospital for some hours. Strangely enough, when he first came to his senses, he kept laughing and asking what happened to him. George commented in a statement, The weird thing was that his thumb was not damaged at all. He couldn't have caught hold of anything hot enough to burn two fingers to cinders without damaging his thumb. I asked at the hospital if he could have electrocuted himself, but they said that to do that sort of damage, it would have killed him long since. Hmm. Wilfred left the hospital in April 1991 and could not remember what had happened to him. He died 18 months later 
from a heart attack. Wow. Okay. So not only is spontaneous human combustion an unpredictable burning horror, but the victim may be in some sort of paralyzed state when it happens? Yeah, it would seem so. Which I suppose also explains why Hamer titled his book The Entrancing Flame. <laughs> but let's put the book down for a moment and explore AnomalyInfo.com's vast spontaneous human combustion resources. Included are some fascinating stories that, while they don't have the victim going into a trance, they do include a bit more... Flaming hands of fiery doom? Mm, flaming hands of fiery doom. On September 5th, 1822, a 40-year-old blacksmith named Renato in the village of Lognon, France, was walking home with a girl on a hot day. It was around four in the afternoon, and they were within a hundred paces of his home when he felt a sharp pain in the index finger on his right hand. Upon looking, he found it crackling with flame. He quickly closed his thumb and middle finger to extinguish the flame, but the result was that both digits also caught on fire. In his attempts to extinguish the flames, Renato burned two finger-sized holes in his pants and then set his pocket, in this case a small bag tied to his belt, on fire. As he quickly tried to remove the garment, he then accidentally touched his left hand with his right, and his left hand started to burn also. Clapping his hands only made it worse. <laughs> Could you imagine a man on fire running down the street clapping his hands? <laughs> Renato ran home and asked his wife to fetch him a bucket of water, which she did. He plunged his hands into the water, but when he pulled them out a short time later, his hands were still burning. Next, he stuck his hands in mud, but it also failed to stop the strange fire. At this point, a very devout young lady told him to try holy water. She fetched him a bowl of it, he put his hands in it, and the flames finally ceased. A physician, Dr. Millenier, traveled to talk to all the witnesses and examined Renato's wounds directly. He described them as being blisters of various sizes, some filled with pus. Overall, he felt he had no reason to doubt the story as it was told, due to the openness and consistency of the witnesses in describing the event. In fact, his only hesitation was in regards to the statement that holy water saved the day, Upon being questioned, Renato cleared up this last problem. The fire, he said, had largely been doused before the holy water was brought in, so it ended the flames, but only because dipping them into any water at that point probably would have extinguished them. But what started the flames? How did they keep burning? The doctor felt the case wasn't related to spontaneous human combustion because the burns were only second-degree burns and they were only on the extremities. Instead, he guessed that the event could have been caused by either electrical phenomena or combustibles of one sort or another in the atmosphere that ignited Renato's hands. Is this supposed to make me feel better? <laughs> you know, I think it's interesting that the scientific mindset actually seemed to be a bit broader 100 <laughs> years ago, where one would actually investigate the facts as presented, no matter how incredible, instead of just dismissing them outright. <laughs> Very true. Next, let's look at Alexander Ogston's newspaper article about an odd fire in 1870. His story is as follows. On February 25, 1825, 
a 17-year-old seamstress was checked into the infirmary in Hamburg, Germany, with the palm of her left hand studded with blisters and complaining of a painful burning sensation in her left forearm, and she had an interesting story to go with it. The problem had begun, she said, on January 21st. She was busy sewing that evening when she felt her body quickly increasing in temperature, which soon became focused in the index finger on her left hand. As she was removing wax from a window, she felt a violent sensation of burning in her finger, which was now surrounded in blue flame, between an inch to an inch and a half, and smelled of sulfur. Hmm. She tried to douse this strange fire in water, and wrapped a wet towel around it, but neither extinguished the flame. In fact, when she dipped her finger in water, the whole of her hand then appeared to be aflame. Alarmed, she hurried home from work with her hand wrapped in her apron. The apron and her clothes caught on fire, but the flames from these were only visible when she was in the dark. Once home, she spent the rest of the night applying milk to the flaming finger, which eventually made the flame go out. But the painful burning sensation remained, and the smell of sulfur frequently came from her hand. After a month of trying to treat the problem herself, she finally checked into the Hamburg General Infirmary. When she checked in with the blisters on her left hand, her middle finger had the largest one, and over the next few days a new blister developed on the tip of her ring finger, along with a further feeling of burning. Her left arm had a higher temperature than her right arm, as the thermometer showed 88 degrees on her left hand and only 70 degrees on the right. The seamstress's odd condition gradually diminished over time, vanishing completely by the end of March. Well, apparently the 1800s were the hotbed, as it were, for flaming hand syndrome. <laughs> Here's another from an 1872 French medical journal. Dr. Rochon de Bru reported a strange event that he had encountered. According to the doctor, on April 19th, 1827, a Mr. Desimaux aged 24, was staying with his brother when the strange occurrence began. Around 9.30 p.m., his brother was amusing himself by burning a bit of sulfur over a candle when he accidentally burned himself and flicked some of the hot sulfur onto his clothing. His coat caught fire, and Desimaux immediately leapt up to help, successfully suffocating the flames by squeezing the clothing in his hands. His brother escaped the incident with two minorly burned fingers, a hole in his coat, and some embarrassment. But shortly after the flames had been extinguished, Desimaux himself felt a sharp pain in his hands. They had burst into blue flames. Water was immediately poured over his hands, but the flames persisted. A poultice was hurriedly made, but only increased the flames. Next, Desimaux ran to a cutler who lived in the same house and shoved his hands into the bone dust under the grinding wheel, which gave a slight relief. But after a half hour of these desperate attempts to stop the flames, Desimaux ran to the nearby home of Dr. Rochon de Bro, <laughs> the trip illuminated by the light of the flames on his hands. <laughs> Once there, Desimont banged on the door until the doctor and a servant answered it. Desimont wildly explained the problem. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it was obvious. <laughs> the doctor, knowing that prolonged immersion in cold liquid was the best solution for burns in general, mm. told Desimont, My God, man, go stick your hands in the fountain over there. The doctor then advised him to hold them there until he felt relief and then go take a cold bath for the night. <laughs> 
The flames eventually died, and soon he felt relieved enough to go back to his brother's house in the dark, his hands no longer lighting the way. <laughs> but only 50 yards away from the fountain, his hands ignited again. At his brother's house, Desimal dipped his hands into two buckets of water, one hand in each bucket, and the water soon became hot enough so that it had to be changed out for cold water. This had to be continually done all through the night. Each time he pulled his hands out of the water, he could see a grease of some sort running down his fingers, and the blue flames would soon reappear. The flames did not produce a lot of light, but the size of them could be judged by Desimont holding his hands under the table where the candlelight was blocked. The doctor examined Desimont's hands the next day, once the flames had fully stopped appearing. The outer layers of skin were gone, and the exposed layers were gray and corroded in appearance. Mm. There were several large blisters, which were treated. Since Desimont had only been visiting and planned to return home, Dr. Rochon de Brut prescribed him a special diet, recommended that he drink lemonade. Can I have this prescription? <laughs> and also suggested that he should bleed his arms if the inflammation became unbearable. Ugh, never mind. <laughs> By the 1st of June, Desimond's hands had largely healed, though they now possessed some wide scars. The little finger of his right hand was difficult for him to fully extend and most of his fingernails had fallen off. But only one was not expected to grow back. And now, we finally know the story behind the drink, the flaming Desimal. <laughs> <laughs> You're too much. I'm terrible. I think there are a lot of clues in these last set of stories. Mm. I think it's really interesting how... Comparing these stories to other stories that we just did not have time to cover in this episode, there seem to be common meridians that this phenomena follows. If mm -hmm. it's not the abdomen, it seems to be the hands. Mm -hmm. And the, the people who experience it f seem to feel the sensation, the pain going down their hands always into their their middle fingers. And focusing there, yeah. Yeah, and it could be the left hand, it could be the right hand, but it seems like it's always the middle fingers. And then a great, great clue that came out of this last story was the formation of the grease, mm. the oil on the hand that seems to be, I don't know, oxidizing in the air, right. causing this flame. Yeah. It's almost like there's some kind of chemical reaction going on and maybe the body's admitting this as a byproduct yeah which would also explain why and i forgot what story it was in i think it was the seamstress who mm. uh right it was the seamstress who had one finger that was on fire and then she put her hand into water which and it made it worse right which made it worse when she pulled it out because the grease would have distributed probably Smeared. floated on top of the water right mm -hmm. and then when she pulled it out <laughs> collects the grease on her hand again and thump her entire hand was on fire and you know come to think of it her putting her hand in milk was probably the smartest thing to do mm -hmm. because and i could be wrong about this but i think that the composition of the milk would help break down the oil mm -hmm. maybe like coffee Mm -hmm. does to hot peppers when you eat them maybe <laughs> i'm no scientist i don't know <laughs> don't attempt any of this at home <laughs> <laughs> 
But the final thing that I think is really fascinating is that in every single case, the flame is blue. Yeah. Interesting stuff. And I think that it is all connected. It is part of the same phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Well, dear guest, before we go, we do have one more story. And it's a bit of a doozy. A sad doozy. Yes, a sad doozy. And one with imagery that will sear into your mind. As it were. As it were. In September 1982, Jeannie Safin was living in her home in Edmonton, London. She was 61 years old and needed to be cared for by family members due to being mentally disabled. Until a year previous, she had never been out of the company of her mother, upon whom Jeannie adored. In the year following the death of her mother, Jeannie constantly pined for her. Her mental capacity was that of a five- or six-year-old, so she did not understand the concept of death. All she knew was that her beloved mother was no longer with her. On the evening of September 15, 1982, she was at home with her father, Jack, and her brother-in-law, Don. According to her father, he and Jeannie were both sitting in the kitchen when he saw a bright surge of light out of the corner of his eye and turned to ask his daughter if she had seen it. To his amazement, when he turned his head to look at her, she was on fire, but just sat still with her hands in her lap. He yanked her over to the sink to try to put her out. Here's a composite of Don's description of what occurred. I heard Dad shout out, Jeannie's burning! I ran into the kitchen and I saw Jeannie standing near the sink with flames coming out of her midriff and her mouth, making a roaring noise like a dragon. Dad was at the sink with a cup and he was throwing cups of water over Jeannie. The smell of the burning was absolutely horrible. It was like gases mixed. Jeannie's red nylon cardigan was melting, but not in flames. I grabbed a large saucepan full of water and I threw it over her and the flames went out. Jeannie was still on her feet, but she was not saying anything and she did not seem to be in any pain. There was no fire or anything else burning in that kitchen that could have set fire to Jeannie. There was no clothing ash on the floor. Her clothes did not burn much at all. She had been sitting on some newspapers Dad had thrown on the chair. The chair and the newspapers were untouched by fire. As soon as she stopped burning, I ran down the hall to the phone and dialed 999 for an ambulance. Jeannie never made a move while all this was going on. When we went to see her in the Mount Vernon Burns Hospital, she was bandaged from her head to below her knees. I could see into Jeannie's mouth, and inside her mouth was burnt. She took about a week to die. When I went to the inquest, there was a coroner and a couple other people sitting there. They asked me a few questions and were talking amongst themselves. I heard one of them mention SHC and someone laughed. I blew my top. I said, how can you say that when I was there and I saw it? You weren't there. The coroner said, I sympathize with you, but I can't put down spontaneous human combustion because there is no such thing. I'll have to put down misadventure or an open verdict. Ridiculous. But if they had seen what I saw of Jeannie, they would think differently. Author John Hamer remarked, A common theme with all the victims was aloneness. Mrs. Safin, her mother, died a year before Jeannie's tragic death. In the last few days of her life, Jeannie was even more withdrawn and had slept a lot and eaten little. When her brother was told of Jeannie's incineration, his immediate and instinctive response was, she brought it on herself. 
The family are certain that her state of mind somehow triggered her incineration. They are not the first to suggest that spontaneous human combustion is a form of unintentional psychic suicide. Wow. If possible, dear guests, check out The Entrancing Flame for more stories. John Hamor, the author, is a retired, forensically trained scene-of-the-crime officer with the UK's Gwent CID. He provides a vast amount of painstaking research in this book. So, if this episode has done nothing else, we hope it has warmed you... As it were. ...to the godless, communist, hippie <laughs> ideology that although we don't yet understand the cause and that can be a threat to our precious human egos, mm. we can at least agree that spontaneous human combustion is a real phenomenon. But you didn't even cover the wick effect, some of you are undoubtedly saying. Let's face the facts, ego shielders. <laughs> the wick effect would explain how an already burning body may do so until it incinerates, but it does not even attempt to explain how a human body begins to incinerate itself from the inside out, which is the actual question mm. that needs answering. And let's accept the truth of spontaneous human combustion without shaming the victims. I yeah. mean, for years, in order to explain and dismiss the phenomena, it has been said to afflict only those who are old, fat, and heavy drinkers. It only happens to decrepit, lazy sinners. But as you investigate it, you see this is simply not the case, as evidenced by spontaneous human combustion happening to babies, even. And we apologize for putting this visual in your head, even in utero. Yeah, it's true. So, as the fiery debate over spontaneous human combustion continues to rage, keep in mind that the root of the argument has more to do with people trying to deal with the terrifying, mm. unsettling, and gruesome notion that bursting into flame from within and dying horribly might be a reality. <laughs> and they just don't want it to be. Mm. Multiple theories have been offered by scientists, coroners, and doctors alike, but none have succeeded at a satisfactory conclusion. In order for them to fit, the tales need to be ignored and dismissed. And we all know that's just not good science. <laughs> <laughs> and that wraps up this fiery edition of Odd Tonic. And we'll be back next week with more weird history, strange science, and paranormal pulpit proclamations. <laughs> this is Dear Guest, goodbye for now. But remember, if you are lying in bed late at night, your eyes wide open as you wonder who is responsible for your insomnia and your new incessant fear that you may, without warning, suddenly burst into flames. Don't worry. It's just us. <laughs> Good night.